I think the trouble with Kenny is that he is so blinded by his ideology, he's starting to misread his population. And I think that explains why you've got all the defend the parks signs out there and, and the people that are coming out now in droves for public health. They are not actually on board with where he's going. This, this mayor may be thinking that this is a wonderful thing, but the public is starting to push back. And actually that's the one thing that, that is starting to give me more hope because as we were talking, there's this tsunami of stuff coming at us. It's too much for one person to keep on top of, but there are now groups that are forming and they're really getting serious about fighting stuff. Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash forgottencornerpod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Welcome back to the Forgotten Corner Podcast. My name is Scott Schmidt. I'm your co-host. I'm here alongside with my partially covered up co-host, Jeremy Appel. How's it going, buddy, under there? Good. I, yeah, um, due to audio concerns, I have built myself a fort. Um, <laughs> Legitimately a blanket fort he's in right now. So Yeah, at my desk. Um, I, I can only imagine what I look like from like outside. <laughs> oh, uh, it, it's great, but you're gonna we're gonna post a shot on Twitter later of a screenshot because I'm sitting here drinking coffee out of our fancy new uh, mug that we've had made, Forgotten Corner merchandise available now. We have one mug so far. We're really building up the inventory, and it's used. <laughs> Jeremy, uh, you had some news this week, buddy. Right, you got a place in Calgary. Tell us. I did. I oh, tell yeah. us where though. You're bad at doxing yourself. <laughs> Uh, well, I will say that it's downtown Calgary. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I think by the time our next episode airs, I'll be living in Calgary. Um, wow, but, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. so it's uh, exciting stuff. I've been doing the uh, City Hall Sprawl newsletter from Medicine Hat uh, for the past couple weeks which you should sign up to if you haven't uh go to sprawlcalgary.com we're here to plug everything jeremy does yeah also, which is a lot like it that could be a whole show yeah i'm uh i'm i'm you know over the summer i think with covid and stuff freelancing was sort of um not as fast-paced and as much as i would uh have liked but really since september it's picked up a lot and then I got a couple uh, part-time gigs that, um, including Sprawl and also uh, Passage, uh, yeah. which you all should read at readpassage.com. And uh, yeah, things are doing well. I've got a, I've got a, a story for Progress Alberta. Um, Good grief. Good for you. That's, uh, that'll be coming out in the next few weeks that I think will make some waves. And yeah, enough about me. How are you, Scott? Yeah, well, I'm pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. I'm better. I'm getting better thing than I was uh, in the last couple of weeks. It's been a bit of a rough grind with Max death and things like that. But um, things are good. Things are looking up. I was uh, chatting to some of my friends last night and uh, they're all seemingly uh, on the mend as well, it seems. So um, the worst of that part is over. So everybody's doing good. 
Um, other than that, you know, just family life and work and, you know, it's a little boring, but when you're 43 years old, boring is pretty all right. So I'm okay with that. And I hate talking about me. So let's say hi to Mo because Mo, uh, Mo had quite the week. He got the sniffles and was like, well, I've got COVID. So I <laughs> better take the week off, get a test done. <laughs> How you feeling, buddy? Good. And that's not true. I took two days <laughs> off. And got tested for COVID, which didn't come back positive. I do not have COVID. Are you sure it wasn't from like Monday morning till Friday morning? That's how it felt. It felt like that for the rest of us that were there to pick up your slack. Just say you you missed me. (laughs) Yeah, I did miss you actually. And we're we're just kidding. It's just that when I I go there and I don't see your little car, it makes me sad. What's up, Jeremy? I just wanted to say that I am sweating like Rudy Giuliani under this blanket. Oh my god! <laughs> well, uh, we'll 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 flip a coin later and see if that gets in the show. Anyway, we got lots to talk about, and we've already just mouthed off for like five minutes for no reason. And we have an amazing guest that we have been dying to get on the show, and uh, that's what we do here. We just line up great guests. So, uh, without uh, wasting any more of your time here, folks, I'm just gonna bring her on to the show. You know her as Susan on the Soapbox, a Calgary-based blogger whose writings have circled Alberta's airways for the past decade. When we finish today, you'll also know her as Susan Wright, a retired lawyer with 25 years working for the oil and gas industry who carries a wealth of knowledge from not only Alberta's most debated economic driver, but the provincial political scene as a whole. The Forgotten Corner is extremely pleased to welcome Susan to the show this week, as both Jeremy and I have been reading and admiring her work for years. And we have much to ask and discuss today. So without further ado, Susan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Scott. And I'm really pleased to be here with you and Jeremy and Mo and Smokey, of course, who's somewhere (laughs) in the corner. She's right here. She's, she's, uh, She's listening intently. She's, she doesn't really get talked about on the show, but she's a part of every single episode. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so in all of this uh, world, how are you been doing these days? Um, pretty good, actually. Although I must admit things seem overwhelming sometimes. And so um, um, I find that like everyone else, we're all struggling to keep up with COVID. We're struggling to keep up with our, our obligations to our families. And, and then we've got this government to deal with. So <laughs> it's, it's a lot for most people. And I think I'm in the same place as many of your listeners, which is just keep our head above water and keep going forward. You know, and, and we're, we're in Medicine Hat here in the Forgotten Corner. And it's been an interesting week. We have doubled cases in a week but that still only puts us at 69 which I mean there's only 60,000 people here so do the math it's actually quite a bit but in Calgary it seems um, like you know Calgary and Edmonton are a bit more of the chaos is maybe not the right word but it's the word I'll choose today Um, is it what's it like navigating life in Calgary do you how much altered are your sort of daily routines well, it really altered because like everyone, well, like most sensible people, I think that uh, we try to adhere to the um, uh, maintain social distancing, wear your mask when you go out, uh, try to limit your contacts. And of course, with the numbers skyrocketing, everyone's pulling back. And what I'm noticing now is friends that we um, that used to see their families or, or be in closer contact with their, their colleagues are now getting um, more upset with other people who seem to blow right through the whole idea of COVID and who think that wearing a mask is, is a sign of weakness and the whole thing is a hoax. Uh, there's a level of tension that's starting to rise as a result of that 
um, refusal to accept the reality of where we are. And I think those of us who are making a lot of effort to try and limit the rise of the numbers are a little annoyed with those who don't seem to care. Absolutely. My mother is like, she's on a frustration level about it. That's almost unhealthy. You know, like you almost have to go out there and you do your part and uh, you just try to stay out, you know, stay your distance from the people that aren't willing to do their part kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I haven't been, you know, harassed or had it, anybody make a comment me at me in, um, in medicine hat for, for, you know, taking care or wearing a mask or anything like that. Has anything like that happened in Calgary to you or to anyone, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, actually I've, uh, my daughter who works in a, a downtown law firm had an interesting encounter with somebody who told her the whole thing was a hoax. <laughs> the numbers were inflated. In fact, the numbers of people dying included everyone who's ever died in the hospital on that day, as opposed to just COVID deaths. Right. And, and my daughter was really shocked because she said, I've not run into a conspiracy theorist before, you know, you think, you know, someone for three years and all of a sudden, bam. And, and it, it's jarring. Yeah, they're supposed to be online in a yes. coming, to, you know, broadcasting to you from a mother's basement somewhere. You know, they're not supposed to be just like your colleague down the yeah. hall or something, right? So, exactly, yeah. exactly. What, what do you guys make of the government deciding to uh, publish the comorbidities that people with COVID deaths have had, and then leaving uh, Doctor Hinshaw? Uh, to answer questions about it? I think that's actually uh, inappropriate because, well, for two reasons. One, these things are private information. And secondly, it, it leads to the impression that only people with comorbidities are susceptible to either getting it or dying from it. And that's not true. And even, uh, if, it even if it were true, mm -hmm. uh, so? What, yeah, are we supposed exactly. to leave people with comorbidities to die? Does everyone that has them know they have them? Like, isn't it possible that you have them and you don't know? No, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. So, I, mean, I mean, you might like, have something like high blood pressure and it hasn't been diagnosed yet. Right. You could have diabetes and you're just st starting to go through the testing process. <laughs> Absolutely. I want to get to all things Susan right now because mm. this is uh, this is something we've been wanting to hear about for a while. And like I when I first stumbled upon Susan on the soapbox, I had no idea of your legal background. And so I'm really interested sort of to hear your story because uh, as we said on the phone the other day, it, it's weird to us that you don't suck. Like you're really, <laughs> like you're yeah. really a great person. And like, you have this like super uh, like understanding of from a perspective that we feel that, that we feel about Alberta and, and you're a, a corporate lawyer from Alberta and you're, I don't know, it's, you could easily be the sort of the conservative, cold hearted, whatever. Right. So anyway, yeah. it's time to tell your story. So I'm going to okay. let you talk for a little bit. Okay. I always wanted to go into law, but I was, I was tentative about doing it because I'm actually very, I was very shy. And the thing that threw me off was the fact that when you go to law school, you have to do a what they call a moot in second year where you get to stand up on your hind legs and debate in front of the classroom, make a case to the teacher. And I didn't think I could do it. So I, I stalled going to get uh, the LSAT for two or three years after I graduated from my high, uh, university and eventually got into it, uh, enjoyed the, the debating part joined a, a big law firm a lit, in a, the litigation practice here in Calgary and then left there to go in-house with um, an oil company. 
and then spent the rest of my career in-house with uh, companies that dealt with oil, natural gas, petrochemicals, and pipelines. So I've pretty well got the energy spectrum covered. And um, through the years, you know, when you, you stay with a company for a while and if you do your job, um, you can move up the corporate ladder. So I had the opportunity to move right up to the executive ranks. And that gave me a really good exposure to how the vice presidents and the CEO think, how they work with their board of directors, what matters to the board of directors, how the, the company deals with the government, how it deals with the securities regulators, all those people that help you figure out how this works. And so it, it, I think it gave me a really good background to, excuse me, to uh, thinking about what matters to corporations, what matters, um, actually how they can be um, not understood by governments. And I see that in, in spades here with this government who thinks it's helping and often is making things worse. And uh, basically from there, I went off to, uh, uh, to the US and was there for seven years from 2000 to 2007 on an executive transfer. Had an opportunity to experience the US right through the 9-11 crisis. So that gives you a real sense of what losing your freedom feels like. And then from there, I went back to, came back to Canada to take a, you know, a dream job where, uh, again, I uh, was a member of the senior leadership team and, and just worked on the various projects that we had to do to get our pipelines built. Which state were you in when you were? I was in Pennsylvania, which was, uh, you know, one of the more progressive states. But uh, just because you're in a state, and at that time they were voting Democrat. But uh, I, I was, the many, many of the people I worked with, including my secretary, were very Republican. She had 37 guns in her house. And, and I remember talking to her about that, saying, what on earth would you need all those guns for? And she said, well, my husband's a collector. And besides, you never know when they may come in and break down your door. And I said, who are they? And she, she was basically talking about black people. And I just thought, have I landed on Mars? It just made no sense to me. But, you know, there's a different psyche down there, a different way of thinking about things. And as Canadians, it's it's hard to grasp sometimes unless you're living in it. It's it's a totally different experience when you travel to the U.S. and you take a vacation for two weeks than when you're living there immersed in that culture day by day for seven years. And did did your sort of uh, views on corporations and specifically the oil and gas industry sort of evolve over that time where you were working? in the industry? Um, well, actually what happened was when you start off as a lawyer, you learn that the corporation is, is set up to, to basically serve the shareholders' interests and your job is to act in the best interests of the corporation. Um, you also learn that there are a number of laws that are in place to make sure the corporation doesn't um, do things that are unsafe to, the, to its employees, to the public, to the environment. Uh, or cheating through uh, cheating the through the securities commission's side of things, and you always look for that balance. And so I was fortunate in working for corporations that tended to be good at that, uh, who uh, CEOs who understood that no, you can't lie to the public, you can't say that you're being environmentally responsible when you're not, you know. Um, but what happened over time was as when I started, the energy sector wasn't seen as such a um, intrusive uh, um, entity that was actually destroying the environment. Over time, that became more clear. And over time, I started seeing that my, my coworkers and others were uncomfortable with, with where we were heading at the speed we were heading and would actually debate it. 
So our environmental folks were successful in saying to one of the pipeline companies I work for, please tell me we're not putting this pipeline through the Sand Hills uh, Reserve, which is a, a huge reserve that uh, is down in the States that TCPL ran a pipeline through and ran into all sorts of trouble. You know, please tell me we're not doing this. And they would make the case and the companies would pull back. But I think I left just as it became obvious that we have to transition to renewables and um, move ourselves off of fossil fuels. So just as I was leaving, that transition was happening. And many of the old guard refused to accept that fact. Why do you think that is? Uh, I mean, we all have our opinions, but like, you know, there's all kinds of theories. People don't like change or greedy, whatever. But I mean, you you were in the industry for a quarter century and were able to like see the writing on the wall and 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 grasp reality as it came to you. Why 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 is every why is there so such a slow um, transition from some of the people that we're just talking about? I think there's two things. The first thing is greed, as you mentioned it. The if you're working in in the energy when I was working in the industry, you could make a phenomenal amount of money. So I'm not just talking about the CEOs. You know, we're making millions every single year. I'm talking about people at the next level down who are who would say to me. I had one person say to me one time. Uh, he was in a the argument with another one of his fellow executives, and he said. Uh, they don't pay me enough to put up with this shit. And they were paying him $800,000. And I thought, are you kidding me? They're paying you more than enough to put up with it. You know, so there's a sense of, um, you know, the world is my oyster. I can make a pile of money here. And these yahoos, these environmentalists are standing in my way. And the other part uh, is, a, is a naive belief and trust in science. So what they, what they say is every time we've met an obstacle, we have found a way to uh, engineer our way out of it. And so, you know, we, we couldn't, uh, we have to put our, uh, well, we had to get oil out of the oil sands. Nobody thought we could do that. And look at that, we did it. You know, it cost a phenomenal amount of money. It, it creates all sorts of uh, pollution, tailing spawns, what's not, but it can be done. So there, the answer was somewhere down there, down the road, after I've retired and made a killing, I will, um, uh, it'll be fixed. I don't have to worry about it. And meanwhile, stop putting all these regulations on me because you're cutting down what I can take home at the end of the year. 100%. And that's the thing, right? Like it's it's about making a pile of cash and someone else will fix it. It's kind of like in a lot of ways, like people that smoke cigarettes, right? Like you put a yeah. put a picture on the pack that says you're this is what's going to happen to your lungs. And people don't give a fuck what's 25 years down the road, right? Like this is yeah. the thing, like you hear people talk all the time about, well, you know, we're, we got lots of oil till 2050 or whatever. Well, my kid is going to be my age in 2050. So hopefully, like, nearly half of his life is going to be lived in a world where there is going to be no use of fossil fuels, like mm -hmm. none. That's right. That's right. You know, yeah. so this, 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 uh, this somebody will fix it later shit. Like, I cannot stand leaving it to the industry to do kind of thing. But yeah. that's what I, we do, I agree. Right? I agree. And actually, in that, when you, you know, you take it back to the government, where our government is now is it's, it's saying that the industry knows best. They can figure out how to do this best. Let's leave them to it. And my experience with corporations um, as a lawyer, you know, advising corporations is the industry will not do it unless you make them do it. The only other reason the industry will do it is if their lenders stop lending them money. So that's where people like Mark Carney are so important when they come in and they say that uh, for only those companies that actually understand that they have to go green, more transitional, are going to get funded by 
uh, banks, by Goldman Sachs, by uh, and get insurance. And unless you can toe the line, you're not getting a dime because we're not going to. They know that that company will not be able to sell the oil in the ground, and that ground that oil is worth zero. Right. Was this cavalier attitude in the industry with regards to environmental protection and uh, you know increasing profit for shareholders? Was that a factor in you ceasing to practice law and? picking up uh, political blogging? Um, actually, I don't think it was a factor in making me leave law. I think uh, I, I was ready to make the change by that point. But um, um, it was an interesting time because, you know, uh, many people, myself and other people, would have these conversations with our colleagues at the, the corporations, and we would just debate with them about these points. So I did see the industry starting to shift. I mean, quite frankly, I would not stay with a company that, that basically said, I don't care what the environmental legislation says, I'm going to pollute all over the place. You know, I think that every, every professional has a, a standard that they have to live up to. And you don't have to sell your soul to work for the corporation. You can find another way to fight that battle. And if you can't fight that battle in this corporation, then you get out or you whistleblow. Mm -hmm. And so there are internal divisions there. Oh yeah, actually that's a really good way of putting it, Jeremy. There are internal divisions and good corporations have an environmental department and they have people who work in occupational health and safety. These people are given a voice and when they say, this is unsafe, we cannot do this, the, a, a good corporation will listen to that. Now what happens is a good, cor well, corporations, all corporations, when they're worried about the bottom line, will fight as hard as they can to keep as much money in, in their coffers. So an example would be, when the federal government came out to the, the federal pipelines and said, from now on, we're going to want you to put aside enough money so that when your pipeline is no longer in operation, you will either fill it full of neutral uh, gas or pull it out of the ground because it's unsafe to leave it there. So all the big corporations, all of them, like TCPL, Enbridge, um, our corporation, we all got together and worked with the federal government to figure out how much money they had to set aside because nobody wants to lock up a bunch of money and not have it at their fingertips when they're out there trying to do business. So they were working their way through the formula, how much should we keep, how much, you know, how, how will you evaluate how much each corporation needs to set aside? I'm a newer pipeline, he's an old pipeline, how come I have to save as much as he does? But you'd have that kind of conversation, but they still complied with the law. Well, who wrote that formula, like a grade schooler? Because it feels like the fund is underfilled. <laughs> Like, yeah, well, so that and, and you're right, there's two funds. I'm talking about the one for pipelines, which is okay. set by the federal government right. for federal pipelines. The fund for abandoned wells is ridiculous. There, 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 it is so poorly crafted. And, um, uh, I mean, I just shake my head when I think about it. It's, it's, a, it's basically, it feels like a get out of jail free card. You know, you, you throw your money in there, you can't pay right now, you, you know, you don't pay enough right now. Uh, then you go bankrupt and you walk right. away. Meanwhile, the, you know, the, the public and the farmers are stuck with this thing on their property. And, and it's, it's not only an eyesore, it's dangerous. So I, I think it's appalling. And other provinces, BC, for example, have done a much better job. They actually put a timeline on it. You have to give us this much money over this much time or you can't uh, get a license. Yeah, Alberta's not really about that kind of red tape. So <laughs> we I'm don't kidding. do things like that. Now, before we go too much further, um, we, we, we just got so when we talked before you were when you first got into Susan on the soapbox, it wasn't 
you weren't doing straight political blogging right off the bat, were you? You kind of started doing some legalese, did yeah. you not? Yeah, what I did, actually, when I came back from, B from uh, the States, uh, I was shocked at the, the state of healthcare in Alberta. It was 2007. We couldn't find a doctor if you, you know, we have to actually go private. We went to a private clinic and we paid, my family of four paid $3,000 each to join this stupid clinic to get healthcare that, that should have been available publicly, but there weren't any doctors in Calgary. And so I saw that, I saw the fact that the waiting rooms, uh, the emergency waiting rooms were getting all backed up. People were dying. And I thought, this is insanity. You know, how can this be happening? So I wanted to write a blog on healthcare. And my IT specialist, who you met earlier, my daughter, said, as she was helping me work through how WordPress works and all that. And she said, well, if, you know, what are you going to call it? And I said, 388, which was the number of people who had died that year or recently, trying to get help and get through um, ER. And she said, yeah, but what if you want to talk about something else? And I thought, gee, there's a good point. <laughs> Maybe I'd like to talk about something else. And so it very quickly morphed because healthcare is part of a uh, political system. The reason healthcare was having difficulty was because the government wasn't funding it properly at the long-term care level. So you got long-term care people that they would call bed blockers in a hospital and it rippled right through and you couldn't get in the ER and, you know, the next day. So then I began to think about this in a bigger, more holistic fashion. And that's what got me into blogging politically. And then I had to learn how to be a blogger because lawyers write like lawyers, you know, and so uh, they write treatises about what you can do and what you can't do and why you can and can't. So it did help that I worked in a corporation because basically your CEO doesn't want to read 50 pages of anything. He wants it concise. But at the same time, I kept sort of reverting back to getting my authorities in line and all that. And then over time, I learned how to smooth that down because people want to read things quickly. They want them to be entertaining. Uh, they would like to know that you've done your research, but they don't need to see it all laid out on a page. 100%. So that was about 10 years ago. You start writing now. Yeah. Um, do you have a, like, was it pretty much straight hell for a little bit? And then you kind of started to... Shifter. I think it, it started to blend a bit because I was starting to pay attention to basically reading Hansard to see if I could see what they were doing on healthcare, And then you read the other stuff. And, and that's the stuff that's so shocking when you read it. It's, it's appalling now. I mean, it was bad enough back then when we had, uh, I can't even remember who the premier was then. It was before Alison Redford. Stelmac? And, uh, sorry? Was it Stelmac? You're right. It was Stelmac. Yeah. You know, and and you read that back and forth stuff where, you know, somebody asks a question and the answer back is snotty and it doesn't answer the question. But the level of uh, disrespect and just blow off the other side that we're seeing now is appalling. So that's what started drawing me more and more into what is driving all this. And, and then, I forgot to mention this to you, but then I think it was around 2014, whenever the by-election came along, I actually ran in the by-election for the liberals, the provincial liberals. Well, talk about an eye-opener, you know. So you stand on the door, you knock on the door and you'd say who you are and you're, you're here in the running in the by-election representing the liberals and they, they, you know, slam you for Justin Trudeau or somebody or the NEP. Actually, I heard a lot about the NEP. And then uh, uh, from that experience, it, it just heightened my, my actually admiration for good politicians and also um, the, the, the need for the public to understand what's going on because the, the level of blank stares that I would get on the doorstep uh, was kind of astounding. And the level of unconcern, people saying to me, because I would always start with things like, you know, are you concerned about healthcare? And, and you'd get a nice young man standing there saying, no, I'm perfectly healthy. I don't need to know <laughs> about healthcare. 
And, and he could be hit by a bus tomorrow and desperately need to get through ER. But as far as he was concerned, he was fine and it was not a problem. So it seems to me that there's a, a pattern here of people thinking in the short term. Right? Yeah. It, it, yeah. And just what, what's working for me immediately is what's going to work forever, yeah. uh, whether it's healthcare or fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- th- does this say something, do you think, about like Alberta's uh, mythos? <laughs> Alberta's mythos is something we could talk about for hours, right? The, um, I think part of our problem in Alberta is we are too closely aligned with the energy sector. And so we, we think any threat to the energy sector is a threat to our own identity. It's certainly a threat to our livelihood. And so, uh, uh, and the energy sector, like every corporation, has much more of a short-term perspective. I, I did follow the corporate sort of arc through um, corporations wanting to make long-term plans and, and enact them and carry them out over five years. And then it very quickly moved to uh, what we have to do is demonstrate improved results every single quarter. Because otherwise, you know, the analysts won't like us. That means we won't be able to sell shares and then we're in trouble. So the, the perspective narrowed from what's good for this company four or five years down the road to what's good for this company in the next um, three months to six months. And, and I think that drove the way many people thought about life, work, whatever, especially here, because we are, like I said, uh, dovetailed into the energy sector. Mm-hmm. And I mean, a, a, another example would be we are the only province without a province-wide mask mandate. Yeah. Well, yeah. some kind of mask mandate. I don't think it's province-wide in Manitoba, for example, I think. But I could be wrong. But... Um, Splitting but, hairs. Yeah, but here, I mean, Calgary and Edmonton, right? Like, we're... we're most well, you, it's up to the cities. Uh, yeah. But I... I don't think it's up to the cities in Manitoba, though. I could be wrong. No, no, you're right. Like, you're right. Every province but Alberta has mandated masks in some fashion. I just don't know if every province is province-wide. But again, we're splitting hairs over nothing here and, and off the topic. So my, my apologies. Yeah, I, well, I, I think her point is that there's a patchwork of uh, regulations, right? The feds aren't going to... Can you imagine if the federal government imposed a mask mandate on Alberta? Oh, Jesus. Yeah, I don't think Kenny, I don't, I think actually Kenny's waiting for that. And, and if he'd he, love if, it, yeah. he'd love it. Yes. And if Trudeau did it, then it would be another thing to add to the quiver of look how terribly picked on we are. I mean, that's the other thing about when you move around a little bit. So I lived in BC and I lived in Ontario and then I lived in Pennsylvania. You kind of understand how the real world works. And most places, I mean, they pick fights with their federal authorities and whatnot, but it's not as rabid as it is here. For some reason, you know, uh, we have identified so closely with energy and with conservatism that that when somebody suggests another way, they're attacking our psyche. Uh, and and it, it's a very unsettling sort of situation to be in. Because how do you talk to people like that? Well, you can't. And that's sort of the point of it is that for that particular group of Albertans, like all you got to do is keep the fuel, like the log on the fire and there's nothing that will ever penetrate to, yeah. to change their mind about how they feel. What I find funny about the mask stuff is I'm pretty sure an overwhelming majority of Albertans are in favor of a mask bylaw. 
uh, or a mask, mandatory masks, I should say, uh, like even in frickin' medicine hat. And like, we would never pretend that our online poll questions are scientifically valued or anything, but uh, they are telling sometimes. And like we did, you know, should me medicine hat have a mandatory mask? But it's like 70, 30, like it, it's pretty wow. landslide of, of people that want it. So um, sometimes I wonder like if Kenny's so married to this, uh, Ottawa bad that they, mm -hmm. he doesn't even sometimes weigh whether Albertans are for or against an issue. He just assumes that Albertans will be against anything Trudeau does as long as he frames it in that sort of a way. Now, we were, you know, when we were talking about you started blogging 10 years ago with under Stelmac and, and whatnot and started reading Hansard and it was a bit crazy, but mm -hmm. let's talk about blogging in 2020 and, uh, uh, you think it was crazy when it was Stelmac. Uh, what, how do you sort of describe in your own words, I guess, the differences between then and now um, as far as um, trying to be a blogger or a writer or anything political in, in this province today? One of the biggest challenges is trying to keep up with the fire hose of change that's flying at us. And it's not necessarily change in the sense of trying to improve things. It's uh, just a mountain of new legislation coming at you all the time. And then it's coming at us um, in a very distorted fashion. Like I me, mean, the propaganda machine works along with this stuff that's hitting us all the time. And it, it's difficult to keep up. It's also difficult to figure out where your priorities are. Which of these myriad of issues do we want to talk about today? Is it going to be opening coal mines in the Eastern Slopes? Is it going to be um, uh, attacking public health care, you know, is it going to be red tape? Like, what do you land on? And, and as a writer, I, and I'm sure you see this too, you know, you, you pick a topic and sometimes people love it and they're all sharing it and other times they're going, eh, because they're looking at something else. So um, I understand that. And it, it makes it a, a challenge just to sort of stay on top of the research behind this, because if I'm going to talk about it, I want to be able to add something to the conversation. And that's what I try to do is say, this is what he has said, this is what we are looking at. And I step back a bit to say, does this make sense? And, and if there's one message I can leave with people listening to this podcast, it's always ask ourselves, why is he passing this piece of legislation? What, and, and in law, what we learn is, is, you know, what is this legislation intended to remedy? What is the problem we're trying to fix? And is it a real problem? It, it, or are we just making up a problem so we can actually slip in something else that we're actually trying to do? And, and what I've seen is this little pattern of, well, let's slip in something that maybe a developer will like, or the used car sales guys will like, or whatever. You know, let's slip in something that helps the insurance industry and pretend it's something that helps the public. And then there's the obvious ones, which is, uh, you know, let's reduce uh, corporate tax rates because that'll cause jobs or create jobs. And let's not have a single example of when that worked. So it was funny. It was funny watching the Hansard dialogue on that because the, the NDP did an amazing job of taking you through the history of how that failed. Kansas, this and that and the other one. And, and just in their, in their member statements, in their discussion and debate about the, that bill, they went through all the times it went wrong. There wasn't one example of when it worked. You know, that, that uh, the entire Kenny team could come up with other than it's going to work. And then, of course, they did it. The big corporations took out, took the, the savings and applied it to paying down debt, shareholder uh, uh, issuing shares, buying back shares, the whole nine yards. And then Canada just packed up the money and went to the States. So lovely. That really worked well, you know. Well, I've always like I've always said, you know, when they these trickle down guys that talk about how like, you know, you just 
reduce taxes and be competitive and that'll lead to everything. I've always said if they had evidence that this worked, they would fucking drown us in it. Oh, sure. Sure. Like, uh, you know, I mean, why else would you do such a thing? Right. And, and you know, back to corporations and what they do. No corporation is going to stand up there and say, no, thank you. I don't want that. You know, I mean, their shareholders would kill them because their, their corporation's obligation is to its shareholders. It is not to the public. The corporation has no obligation to create jobs just because you gave them a tax cut. And in fact, if they did that and did not pay down debt or, or do share buybacks, their shareholders would punish them. Right. I, I wrote about that originally when they first, when it first came out, I said, they're going to give it, it's being all given to shareholders. And here's why it's not even that they're greedy. It's that there's literally no business case to do anything else for it. They don't, if they're not building capital, they're not building capital. If they're Mm -hmm. not hiring people, they're not hiring people. Like if you give a fucking, uh, you know, kitchen corner store, yeah. an extra bit, but a bit of money. They're not going to hire that employee they don't need. It's That's the right. same thing at the biggest corporate level. Like it doesn't matter how much profit you tax or don't tax or whatever. They need the number of employees they need to do the job they're trying to do. And by giving them more money or taking less from them, you yeah. haven't created a need for them to build or hire. So they give the money to each other because like you said earlier, it's weird when you are in a corporation and you have money just sitting around. You're like, that's not right. It's it's not you you can't you're not supposed to do that. You know, the last thing you want to do is have a big fat uh, treasury because then you're a nice plump target for a takeover. You know, they will use your own money to buy you. So you'd you'd be nuts to do that. And so my question there is, is Kenny stupid and not does he not know this or does he does he really know this? And he's just basically um, rewarding the people that put him in power because his thrust would be to stay in power for as long as possible. How do I do that? So, you know, I, I, when I keep thinking about what, what drives this man at the end, I think he just wants to be the boss. And what does it take for me to be the boss? It, it takes getting the support of the corporate sector. It takes all this propaganda that I'm telling people to, uh, to basically mislead them into why I'm such a good deal for them. And I'll just press on. And, you know, like the more money I can get into the private sector, whether it's healthcare, education, whatever, the better. I mean, I find him unconditionally married to his ideology. Jeremy, what do you think? Yeah, I think uh, Jason Kenney is many things, but stupid he's not. Uh, I mean, the, the guy's never lost an election, right? He, he knows what he's doing. And it's all, it's all part of a you know, broader plan he has, I think, to remake Alberta and then remake Canada uh, according to his extreme uh, neoconservative ideology. And you saw a bit of that when he was Harper's, uh, I mean, he, he, he was in a bunch of cabinet portfolios for Harper, but, um, um, but I mean, ultimately he wasn't the one in charge and you know people say i remember after uh you know andrew Scheer lost the election people are saying oh kenny's just gonna hightail out of alberta and go to ottawa and i don't think he's that craven like or maybe he is but but he's a lot more cal- right like he's still a damage to be here he still is using alberta as this test lab Mm-hmm. In the same way, like Sam Bram, Sam Bram got these Kansas. 100%. And yeah. it doesn't matter how many times that fails, 
it's some it's something else that caused it to fail do you know what i mean like it's it's not their ideology that's a failure in fact if they're in fact every time it fails they're like well it's because we weren't ideological enough we didn't drive this home enough it wasn't free enough the market you know it wasn't there wasn't taxes weren't low enough red tape wasn't reduced enough this is this is how they think it's never like well i've reduced all of this red tape and and it's ruining everything we should probably put the red tape back no it's like let's finish the job Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, and and if if that fails the last resort um, uh, excuse is that well we had the right idea but the messaging was wrong you know the messaging was wrong. You had a crap idea. You messaged it, and everyone rejected it. 100%. It's never my fault, right? It's but it's also never the market's fault, right? That's true. Um, we, right? I, I mean, I saw some moron on Twitter um, that was getting ratioed said, "Markets don't fail us; we fail them." Oh, for Pete's sakes, really? Yeah, and I mean, I mean but that is like uh, I think perfect encapsulation of neoliberal slash neoconservative ideology. 100%. We, every single time the market fails, they find some way to blame it on the interference of of the public or the government or whatever in these things. And that if we just get them out of the way, because, you know, economics is a science that exists in nature and supply and demand is uh, basically the law of gravity. It is Mm -hmm. just you know, this is how they think. And of course, it's always to mask the fact that we made the whole goddamn thing up. Like mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a, this is, this is everything we do is created by us. We can tweak it. We can fix it. We can change it. We can great reset it if we want. Mm-hmm. And, and when you look around and see things working on this level, maybe, maybe a great reset isn't such a bad idea, but that's another show. Now you <laughs> talked, you talked about earlier, um, said you said something i found interesting you said legislation when it, you know you ask yourself what it's there for what's the problem it's trying to solve mm-hmm. and we talked a little bit the other day about uh this this loss of freedoms um that seems to be part of um this onslaught of legislation that some of it's just to give things to corporations and some of it's just to make it easier for them to whatever but some of it Bill 1, Bill 30, Bill 32, whatever. These are things that have been put in place to the, it's like the problem they're trying to solve is us. Yes. Like you, sorry, go ahead. No, no. I think the way you put that is perfect. You said the problem they're trying to solve is us. And I think that's absolutely right. But that when they came out with that bill that basically said that the cabinet by an order in council has the right to declare any space anywhere a, a, a piece of essential infrastructure, any space, then what they did was they pretty well wiped out our ability to peacefully protest because then they could bring in the police and, and charge you with trespass and whatnot. No need for that legislation whatsoever because we have two sets of laws already on the books that deal with trespass of, on public and private property. And we have the criminal code that says you can't loot or, or vandalize places. I mean, how much more legislation do you want to keep an eye on, on, on protesters? But they came out with that one and I thought, well, that's actually pretty draconian, you know, and then tried to explain it because, oh, well, people got in the way of trains coming from Ontario and blah, blah, blah. And then from there, you know, they, they started dismantling labor unions and they started pushing back on uh, minimum wage. 
And they started saying that they were going to take, you know, loosen the regulations with respect to environmental stuff and, and OH&S stuff. And I thought they're, they're trying, I feel like they're trying to corral us into a corner. So let's make sure big business that will get me elected and stay in power is happy. And let's make sure the people that big business actually controls by here's your paycheck and, um, and that I'm controlling by saying you can't protest against the paychecks and whatever's happening to you um, and outsourcing your jobs to the private sector and whatnot. Let's make sure all that's covered. And that's the part that's kind of scary because it, that is hugely Orwellian. You know, when you think about these little pieces of legislation come through and, and there is disparate. So here's one. And then two months later, here's another one and another one. And but when you add them all up, it's a shocking um, invasion uh, and actually um, denigration of democracy. And, and then to boot, while we're at it, let's make a mockery of the legislature by walking in with earplugs, hardy har har, so that when the other side is speaking, we can mock them. And let's call Shannon Phillips pussycat and all that other crap that they do. The, the level of lack of respect for, the, for the, the democratic process is shocking. It's just shocking. And, and I think we're becoming accustomed to that, partly because we're seeing the gong show in the US and partly because it just keeps happening and people don't stand up, enough people don't stand up and say, that's not right. Even if they're conservatives, they don't stand up and say, that's just not right. You can't treat people like that. You can't treat democracy like that. Do you think it's because, like you said, it's a little bit at a time and it's these little things like what is it because you we all sit here and anyone I talk to whenever we talk about these bills, we're all like, Jesus Christ, this is like, this is friggin awful like this, like you said, it's draconian like what are we yeah. doing here we this is setting it up so that they can basically corral you out of the way when you do a descent on anything they want to do. And everybody just sort of it was, it was now, it was glossed over for a lot of reasons. Like we talked about earlier, there's a million things happening all mm -hmm. at one time. It's hard for us to all, all um, pay attention to it all. But is it just because it's these little ticks or, or do people, are people like actually convinced that their fellow person is the problem in their life and that they might, you know, them, them protesting their plights or whatever is just in my way? Yeah, actually, I think it's probably a combination of that. But the one that, that I think there are an awful lot of conservative thinkers in this province who view people who show up and protest as the enemy. And they may view that because, you know, you're standing in the way of privatization of healthcare, and I want to get my knee replaced. So get out of my way. Or they may view it as you're standing in the way of my right to become a healthcare provider and make a lot of money. So get out of my way. Or they can be like my father used to be. Uh, I remember we were talking um, years ago about the, the riots, the democratic riots in Chicago where people, the protesters were being shoved through the window of the big hotel where the convention was happening and they were being bludgeoned with, by police with bully, billy clubs. And I was really upset about that, I was a kid. And he said, if those protesters are standing there, they deserve everything they get. So that's the problem, right? The law is always right. The government is always right. You are in the way. You, you should not open your mouth. Be quiet. And this is a man who fled Hungary uh, after the war. You know, you'd think he would know better. And yet there was a sense of this structure is a good structure and it's keeping the bad people um, out of my way, as opposed to the people who actually have a voice. I think he's taking away our voice. And that really troubles me. I want to uh, talk a bit about red tape um, mm -hmm. because of course your experience in the corporate sector, I think makes you uh, 
someone whose brain we should uh, racket at that a bit. The, you, you know, this government, uh, you know, it created the Associate Ministry of Red Tape Reduction. Uh, we saw just last week they're taking away provinces, uh, sorry, municipalities' power to uh, set their own development timelines. And Grant Hunter, the Associate Minister, says that this is great because it'll speed up the timelines, it'll reduce costs for developers, and um, sort of ties into what we've been talking about this whole time. That will trickle down to people who want to purchase homes. Mm -hmm. um, of course, we know that's not going to happen, uh, but it, uh, what I find very interesting with, with this red tape discourse is how it's all about cutting it for corporations. But yep. then if you look at their labor legislation, and, and by the min uh, uh, Labor Minister Jason Coffey's own admission, they're increasing red tape for unions. Mm -hmm. so, so what's going on here? What, what I, I, I mean, I, I think I know, but I, I, I want to ask you, what, what explains this discrepancy? I think you, you've absolutely nailed it, Jeremy. I think what it's, what's going on here is let's make it easier for businesses to do what they do to make money, and let's make it harder for anyone else to get in the way of them making money. And what bothers me is that these things, again, we're talking about how subtle or small they are. I was looking at some of the red tape um, changes that are coming through in Bill 48, and the one that puzzled me, that they all puzzled me, but the one that really puzzled me was the changes to the Historic Resources Act. I mean, who knew we had red tape in Historic Resources Act? I didn't even know we had a Historic Resources Act. So I took a quick look at that, and I, it's not an in-depth look, but it goes after things like we don't need to designate historic areas anymore. So I thought, well, so do we have some? And then I, that meant I had to go to the regs. And in the regs, we have two historic areas. One is the Fort McLeod Historic Area. The other one is the old Strathcona Historic Area. So my immediate thought was, are they planning on deregulating dehistoric, they're not gonna be historic areas anymore, so a developer can come in and build something. I mean, why else would you change something as arcane as this? You know, and then the other piece that it hits is people who collect ammonites and, and uh, paleontology and bones. Like, honest to God, is there a business that's booming in the background that is dying to get their hand on ammonites? Or is there somebody somewhere who is, irritated because he has to go through certain steps to dig that stuff out of the ground and sell it. What, what is the point? You know, back to why are we doing this? What's the remedy we're trying to fix? And then you get into the other things they're doing, like they're consolidating the Surface Rights Board, the Land Compensation Board, the New Home Buyers Protection Board, and the Municipal Government Board. And what bothers me about this is the complete and utter lack of consultation because Land Compensation Board and Surface Rights Board are the two boards that landowners go to when oil companies come in and, and say, I want to lease your land, or a, a property a business comes through and says, I need to expropriate your land. And this government is big on protecting property rights, and they are now consolidating the entities to make it faster so that we can rush these things through to expropriate land and decide how much money you get. So, you know, I mean, and if I'm wrong, I would, I would know that because they would have a conversation in the legislature, but they're not debating it because it's being rammed through in this omnibus bill. You get talking about property rights. We talked to uh, Roberta when she's on the show about that quite a bit too. 
is that really the sort of the end game of all of this? Like, uh, um, protecting like that's that, that really what this is all about just sort of this protection of of um private property and land and and these kinds of things because like what's the drew barnes's uh mm-hmm. bill that he's trying to get through that he may or may not have a conflict of interest in or whatever <laughs> is is point is, of order right is just about um uh, property rights and of mm-hmm. course he's a mass property owner and mm-hmm. uh, we've sort of it seems like his whole mantra from the time that he got into politics was all about sort of protecting property rights is that just is that really what all of this is about so the protection of property rights that we're just talking about here that i think we're going to see as a result of this bill 48 is the protection of developers rights to get their hands on your property so the individual landowner can sell his property to the to the well i don't know if there's somebody who's working or has a place in the old strathcona historic district Maybe they want to sell it to somebody who wants to build a high rise, make a pile of money. And they can't because this thing's a designated historic area. Well, guess what? That might just change. So it's, it's always, you know, who can make money from what and don't get in their way. I, I mean, that's what I think this red tape reduction is all about. Well, I mean, it's certainly it certainly isn't about, uh, you know, safety or health mm-hmm. or any of these things. I mean, that's re- like the rules and regulations are there to protect the people. That's right. right. And so anytime you remove them, I mean, you're removing protections. They call it red tape, but it's really just protection reduction. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the classic example. When they when they brought forward this bill in the in the earlier uh, session, one of the criticisms that the NDP raised was they said, well, so what do you define red tape as? And they had no definition. They didn't know what red tape was. So one bright light in the UCP government basically whipped up Wikipedia and read the Wikipedia definition of red tape. And then the, I think it was um, Christina Gray said, if you read further down on that Wikipedia page, they give an example of when cutting red tape failed and it was the Grenfell Towers where 72 people died because the, the uh, red tape reduction was fire inspections could now take, um, it took something like half an hour where they had, they used to take six hours. So the Grenfell Tower had a very inadequate fire inspection process and the darn thing went up in smoke and killed 72 people and sent another 72 to hospital. So that's, you know, that's an example of red tape reduction and how it works for the developer, but doesn't work for the homeowner. Red tape's one of the things that I've sort of had on the back burner to write about. And it's just like, there's always something every week that comes up and I'm like, oh, I got to write about that instead. But mm-hmm. um, this, it, everything they do is about profit making. Yeah. Everything they do, whether you can make money off of buying and selling property, whether you can make money off of what, whatever, but getting, getting to that point plays faster. And they sell it to us in this idea of these regulations, all this red tape, it's holding back business mm-hmm. as opposed to what, what it really does is, is offer protections. Yeah. Um, the and, kind and protect of- the public and protect the public interest. There may be a public interest in preserving our our history in Old Strathcona. That 100%. goes against that goes against some guy wanting to sell his his house to make a thirty story high rise. I don't know what they're going to do there, but I'm just saying, what is the purpose of that? Well, yeah, in parks, there's another there's, there's another, another one. Uh, piece of red tape that is standing uh, in the way of developers. I mean, ha- have these people not read the Lorax? Right, <laughs> right. Now, do you, 
some of these things that they're doing, right, or lots of these things they're doing, they feel like they would be extremely hard to undo when we when we get rid of them like from a legal standpoint when you're when you're writing some of these laws that sort of like turn public land into sellable land or whatever like Mm -hmm. you can't really undo that once it's done it seems like well i think it'd take a lot of work i mean if you take uh, parkland and convert it to crown land and then you sell the crown land in a disposition you're not going to get that land back right you can't go to the person who bought that property and say return it to the government please we're putting it back into crown land and park it's gone you know it's the old you can't uh, <laughs> i mean how do you unscramble the egg it's done so the worry and and the same goes for all the people who died in the grenfell tower right i mean once somebody loses their life or loses a limb because of a red tape reduction effort they're done so it's it that's the part that's so frustrating about all this is that it just keeps coming at you like a tsunami. And and the end goal, I think, is to make sure that the corporations and developers and business people are happy and the rest of us aren't. And it comes back to their their initial philosophy, which was we cannot be a prosper, we, we have to be a prosperous province first before we take care of social issues. And that says to me, we can't walk and chew gum at the same time. You know, one well, is priority. And it also suggests that taking care of social issues won't help the economy or won't help the prosperity when in fact it's the exact opposite the more educated the more healthy the the more well-fed well housed whatever we are the more prosperous prosperous we're going to become educated people do prosperous things sure yeah and as you said a province that actually is known for having uh, high levels of education and really good health care will attract people a province that's known as, as a, as a um, hellhole is not going to do that. I don't care, you know, how big a plant you've got up in, in Red Deer, it's still not going to attract anybody. Well, and this is the thing, like, just a quick thing from Medicine Hat here, but um, we just had uh, an update with the mayor this week talking about this, you know, you do an end of the year budget update, and that's coming on December 7th, their next council meeting. And he said this week to us, that this will that there will be it will be the biggest cuts to a budget in the history of Medicine Hat, and he said it a couple times in a couple of ways. And whether it's how the story was written or or just how I feel about our mayor, it mm-hmm. it friggin' sounded like bragging almost, like you know what I mean. But at the same time, like if you are if you are somebody like they're trying to grow medicine hat well if you're somebody thinking about moving or whatever like are you going to go to the place that in the last two years stopped cutting the grass and fucking they're cutting down trees and shrubs because they're too expensive to upkeep like our ucp in the living wall at the building oh yeah this assault on anything of beauty right and then on top of that they're like by the way we're gonna cut services like never have been cut before if you're somebody that's looking for a place to go who out there is like, well, the property taxes are still low, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you 100%. I, and I think that uh, we're back to, I was thinking about what Jeremy had said about uh, Kenny being smart and a good leader. I think the trouble with Kenny is that he is so blinded by his ideology, he's starting to misread his population. And I think that explains why you've got all the defend the parks signs out there and, and the people that are coming out now in droves for public health. They are not actually on board with where he's going. This, this mayor may be thinking that this is a wonderful thing, but the public is starting to push back. And actually, that's the one thing that, that is starting to give me more hope, because as we were talking, there's this t- tsunami of stuff coming at us. 
too much from everyone, one person to keep on top of. But there are now groups that are forming and they're really getting serious about fighting stuff. And so as we get all these individual groups who are lining up to say, I'm going to take the public health one, I'll take the parks one. Um, what we need to do next is to, to sort of conglomerate these people when it's starting to really, we can feel it and take a good run at them and make sure they don't get reelected because they are running our province into the ground. And if they honestly believe so. that, um, that the, the people who run Sonovas and all the big oil companies are going to stick around after they've made their money, they're nuts. Yeah. I mean, Murray Edwards moved to, uh, moved to London, England, right? And he was the guy that was running one of the big oil companies. I can't remember which one it was. But. Absolutely. And like, I, I agree 100%. Like, I get accused by the odd bad email or whatever of being some sort of NDP supporting yeah. socialist, blah, 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 or whatever. It's like, I'm not doing this because I want the NDP to be in government. I'm doing this because the UCP cannot stay in government. That's like, right. I don't care if you're a journalist. I don't care if you're a fucking pipe fitter. I don't care if you're a stay-at-home dad or mom. You cannot afford what this government is doing. And mm -hmm. their ideology does not work. There is right. no evidence that it's ever worked. It has only ever worked for the few and mm -hmm. been detrimental to the many. Yeah. And they are their, their devotion to this ideology is unbreakable they and, and and we cannot like i said like they talk about like how long it took to get over some of the things the austerity measures that ralph klein did like i don't mm -hmm. think people get it like this is fucking ralph klein on all kinds of steroids that's right that's right yeah and and i think i i 100 agree with you i think that we're uh many people who would never have dreamed of uh not voting conservative are seriously looking at it now. I mean, and think about that as a win in 2023. Nobody has to convert all of these people to the NDP or something. All we need to do is, is ask them to stay home. You know, for sure. Like if you don't got a, if you don't have a horse in the race anymore, then don't mm -hmm. bet on the race. I don't care. Yeah. Just stop yeah. picking that guy. Mm -hmm. um, so now what's, what's, what's curious to me is where Drew Barnes is going to go with this. He's picking up a lot of momentum on his um, um, standing out while well, he wrote the minority report on the fair deal panel. Yeah. He, he's always appearing on these. I see these weird little sites of people who are really pro Wexit separation. Yep. You know, and I mean, these are these are a bunch of tax lawyers and people in Mount Royal. And they're, they're publishing his letters and, and he's talking about how, how disappointed he is that Kenny took that uh, separation um, card mm -hmm. off the table. And what interests me is that Drew Barnes has not been ejected from caucus. He is such a pain in the butt for Kenny, and he is he's still there. Because he's a bigger pain in the butt out of his caucus, and here's why. Mm -hmm. If Drew Barnes runs for the rip against the UCP, the NDP will win the seat here. Yeah. That's a fact. It yeah. happened before. How does Medicine Hat elect a progressive uh, a candidate in 2015? You had a Wild Rose Crosser floorer, right? Mm -hmm. One of the guys that went to the PC, so he was hated. Yeah. And the wingnut that ran for Wild Rose is like the wingnut of all wingnuts, and she had no hope. Like she was, eat, you know, and so the NDP won. I'll mm -hmm. tell you right now, if Drew Barnes, he could run independent and he'd get 
minimum second place. Like he's pretty well liked around here yeah. and he is dangerous to Jason Kenny. And, and so, so what, sorry, I, go ahead. No. And what I was going to say was, I think that's exactly the right calculus on that. What's going on. And I think Kenny is, is trying to keep him close to keep him from going too far afield. But I think Drew Barnes is a very ambitious man. Drew Barnes was snubbed by Kenny by not getting a cabinet post when he oh, his government. And Drew Barnes has his own following. Uh, he's got a longer history with uh, the Wild Rose than Kenny does, obviously. And I think he's a serious threat. So I'm waiting for Drew to you know, continue to do what he's doing and step it up over time. 100%. And, and that's gonna be a nice thing to see, frankly, for the reason you just described. Well, and I, I promise you the NDP is enjoying every minute of it and they're mm -hmm. sticking their finger in that wound and working it around. Like Rachel yeah. Notley has brought up Drew Barnes's separatist antics in the legislature a few times, sort of yeah. trying to force Kenny to say something one way or the other, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. uh, he, they even had Drew Barnes defending one of their motions, which was to basically a motion to stop Drew Barnes. Like it's bizarre, this, this mm -hmm. fight that's going on. But again, anything that splits conservatives is going to be good for the NDP. So I know that they uh, are enjoying this. Yeah. I know Kenny doesn't know which way to go with Drew Barnes. Mm -hmm. And if all he's hoping probably is that Drew Barnes just doesn't want to run in 2023, which I think is possible. And Drew, Drew doesn't want to run. Well, I, th yeah. I think Drew, if, well, who knows, but I think that Drew is going to be continuing to build his support through the, the next few years. And I think as Kenny's um, popularity continues to drop, it is perfectly legitimate for the UCP to say, maybe we need a leadership race. I mean, it's, isn't it funny that like, we, we talk about the kamikaze campaign uh, uh, against Brian Jean. Mm -hmm. Drew Barnes was almost Brian Jean. Yeah. He just about won the leadership of the Wild Rose. And Drew yeah. Barnes would be the one that Kenny or the group that was doing this for Kenny without his knowledge mm -hmm. want to get sued, <laughs> um, you know, would have done this to Drew Barnes and Drew Barnes would be out of politics. So yeah. I don't think, you know what I mean? Like Drew Barnes's um, attempt to get uh, Kenny on his side with by sort of kissing his butt early on was was tactical across the board uh we do have to sorry i got it we got to wrap it up jeremy do you have any last questions for susan before we let her get back to her saturday <laughs> uh no i think we covered a lot of ground on this episode um i would just say with regards to uh barnes who i would love to have on the show uh, who we say it every week yeah um I, I I agree that I think Kenny would rather have him in the tent pissing out than out of the tent pissing in. Mm -hmm. But he's at the same time he's 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 pissing in the tent too. Oh, yes. uh, and so yeah, I mean that's that's definitely like I think Cypress Medicine Hat, especially if Drew goes fully rogue and runs for like one of the exit parties um that that'll be a riding to watch for sure mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. i don't I like yeah i mean barnes is uh you know got a lot to say about him he's an interesting guy i would say he's well it's, it's one of these you know it, it, it what's that old saying uh keep your friends close but your your enemies closer 
or, or the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend or whatever of those ones. I mean, that's the way I see it. Yeah, well, Sun, Sun Tzu said, if you know your enemy like you know yourself, you'll win every that's time. Right. Yeah. That's right. That's a good point. I mean, bottom line is Drew Barnes is a uh, uh, like a sort of a spinning top in a <laughs> scenario like that just could do a lot. He could end up being a bull in a china shop. He could end up fizzling out, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, all I know is Jason Kenny doesn't know what the shit to do with him. And I think yeah. that's hilarious. Yeah, um, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now we've come to the end of our show here today. Um, so uh, before we say our goodbyes, I'm going to just give a little shout out to our patro- patrons who go above and beyond um, uh, and let them know that we got a little something coming for you guys as well. So to Dave Von Miller, to Big Red Machine, to Chris Derwell, thanks for everything you guys you do, uh, for everything you guys do for us. It's huge to other, all of our other patrons. We couldn't uh, appreciate it more than we do to susan wright we are so happy that we were able to come on the show um we think we should do this again sometime because uh, you're a joy to talk to you have a lot of um really really uh, amazing things to add to these conversations and uh, i love the perspective that you bring and uh i'm a fan i've been a fan of your work for years and uh so glad you do it just keep freaking doing it well, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, I've had a great time chatting with you all and, and say bye to Smokey for me as we sign off. She says bye, bye, Smokey. She says bye. Thank you, guys, everyone. You guys, we'll see you guys next week. We have another great guest. We're really lining them up. So, uh, yeah. Sounds Happy great. end of November. Take care, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>